0: So welcome back to Toronto. Um, <coughs> as some of you may know, the, um, this is an event related to uh, York's conference for, of the last two days on film and philosophy. We're going to try to do some at least rough justice to both film and contemporary politics uh, this evening. Um, starting with film, we may get more or less organically To contemporary politics and if we don't we'll just abruptly switch gears uh, at some point Um, but we might start off by talking about your your uh, approach in some sense uh, to film Uh, there's coming out of this conference which was concerned with the articulation of film and philosophy you seem to be part in some sense of a a group of thinkers who in recent years and decades have um, have considered in some sense film as a kind of thinking, as a mode of thinking, mm. thinkers from Deleuze, to Marie-Josée Mondin, uh, Roderwick, Nancy, uh, Badiou, uh, etc. cetera. Um, but you might be distinctive among this group in um, your Lacanian approach, that is to say, foregrounding the unconscious, fantasy, mm. the real, and um, perhaps not everyone in the audience is familiar with the coordinates of your way of approaching film, Marx, Lacan, uh, etc. but perhaps w- we could hear from you, you know, how you think you, uh, you, you do and should approach films from, from the most immediate, pleasurable reactions to the, the most rigorous sort of analyses.
1: But Thank you very much. First, my gratitude to Matthew, to you, to all the organizers. I'm really glad and proud To be here just the ontological question you should ask is this one my one of my favorite quotes from Hegel is where he says that uh, the spiritual result of Peloponnesian war you know in ancient Greece tragedy states is that Tukidides wrote the book on Peloponnesian war I like this crazy idealist notion that Things in reality happen so that then a book can be written about them. And I think that, of course, (coughs) if we have to choose, should thousands of people die for a book? Of course, the answer is always no. But things are more complex. Think about Shakespeare. Isn't it from our perspective the justification of all Tudor England It's basically what matters is Shakespeare wrote the plays, which are much more interesting than reality. And I'm ready to go further here and say, I provoked them when I was in San Francisco. I said that, are you aware that your city was created so that the only ontological justification of vertigo is for Hitchcock to shoot? Sorry, I already said, for San Francisco exists for Hitchcock. Now, I wonder, do you already have such a movie? So you are ontologically not yet, (laughs) not yet. (laughs) I know that some shitty big things like uh, Superman and so on were shot here, but something is missing here for me. You still (laughs) search for it. Okay, more seriously. uh, (coughs) I'm not so sure that I am really able to do it, philosophy film, so I would first like to be very frank and self-critical incidentally if I talk too much just cut me short (laughs) okay Um, let's be frank in 70 to 80 percent I would have said of stuff that I write about cinema it's not really imminently about cinema either I just refer to the story or to a scene to illustrate a theoretical point or a little bit better but still not enough I simply use cinema to make as a tool to analyze our ideological predicament. For example, that's what I try to do with some Batman movies, Nolan's Batman movies, and so on and so on. It's nice as 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 far as it goes, but it's not yet an imminent analysis. Because with many things that not only me, but also others who write, about movies with many things that they do you can always make this vicious experiment imagine that there is no movie but just the basic story of the movie and the whole analysis stands so it's not really about the movie and I think there are just a couple of times where I do maybe something more some not all of my Hitchcock analysis what I did on Krzysztof Kieślowski, Decalogue, and so on. Uh, some of the stuff that I did on Tarkovsky, although I'm today much more critical about Tarkovsky, and maybe a little bit about Matrix, and so on. But more or less, that's all, I think. And now I will go a step further and say that in my usual analysis, it's not really philosophy film. I'm proposing, advocating a certain thesis about our society, ideology, or even more general philosophical thesis, and I really just illustrate it. What philosophers who claim that cinema can think, what they mean is, I think, something much more radical. Films can think, this does not mean that uh, they illustrate philosophical thesis or whatever. No, they think immanently, which means for me, I'm here an old Marxist formalist, in their very form. Uh, you have a certain narrative, scene or whatever. Immanent analysis begins when you demonstrate not only how forum matters in the sense that there is an inner necessity for that story to be told in that precise way. And I'm talking here not only about general narrative structure, but about camera movement, soundtrack, and so on. Uh, But even a step further, and here for me, thinking begins a real one. I was always fascinated by movies where there is a subtle tension between narrative content and the forum, the way the forum is told, where forum does not simply illustrate the narrative content, but counteracts it, even subverts it in a way. I'm sorry now if, but I hope not most of you, some of you know the examples that I will mention now, but that's the reason why I am a great admirer of, not all of them, but some of Robert Altman's movies like Shortcuts. I think that as to its content, and most critics remained at that level, if you saw, it's one of the great American classics, uh, Shortcuts, I think. If you know all this intersection of seven, eight storylines, it's as we say in the usual superficial Marxist critique terms, it's the despair of the middle class, everyday life in L.A. Area, suburb- uh, this suburban silent despair of daily life. So, where is the counterpoint? Because, and that is the beauty of it—the way I read the movie. It's not at the level of content that some character, nonetheless, shows the path to what brighter future or whatever. It's the form itself, which is very Spinozian. This. Ten, eight, no, eight or nine, narrative lives intersecting, this universe of contingent encounters where, okay, they can be tragic, but they can also bring new hope. You know, this pluralistic open universe of, it's a, really a kind of a Spinozian or even Deleuzian ontology and at this level I like it. It's not a work controlled by God, it's open multiple reality with Contingent encounters, which can be tragic, but also can bring luck. And this universe in itself, the narrative structure of the movie, is the optimist counterpoint, I claim. You know, so again, it's not that you discover that beneath the terrible despair of everyday life, there is hope, what, of a socialist revolution in LA, I don't (laughs) know what. Mm -hmm. The forum itself brings, uh, A different uh, message. Now, so that you will not say that I dream. I will give you another example, I hope you already know it, because you know, I don't have any problem with enjoying a big blockbuster. I'm not a fascist of those boring art movies which when they are over you are glad that they are over and then you celebrate it just as a kind of a superstitious measure. I will talk about <laughs> it so that I don't have to see it again or whatever. <laughs> but there are art movies which are <coughs> uh, Really good, and I really enjoy them. One of them, if you allow me this detour, since we are where we are, is... uh, And I'm not giving you some multicultural bullshit, ooh, uh, Native Americans, Inuits, what a great nation. No, it's simply fucking a good movie. Did you see The the Fast Runner? Yours. Mm -hmm. I really, I simply enjoyed it. And I hope I can repeat a story, why I like it. I hope you don't yet know it. It was a big lesson against, uh, against superficial leftist critique. I read, I mean, I thought some people who were friends with the producer sent me literally a box, all the materials about the movie. And there I read something wonderful. The director of the movie, who now unfortunately died, I think. Uh, you know the story, so we will not go into it. But some idiot, idiot, I, I mean white, liberal, politically correct, left, pseudo-leftist critique, reproached the movie for uh, succumbing to Hollywood commercialization. Because, you know, the movie stages an old Inuit legend. And the movie changes the ending. In So I read, the original Inuit legend ends tragically. They all more or less kill each other in the movie it's just that the two bad guys are not even killed they are just excommunicated and so on it's a much softer open ending so the reproach was but you are not faithful to the original you succumb to hollywood commercialism and so on oh my god the guy the inuit director gave a perfect answer he said no you are a a white racist here he says because you don't see that Retelling the story always in a different way to fit the present circumstances. That's our Inuit tradition. Your notion of faithful, being faithful to the original, this is your white people ideology. You don't get it how our original native logic works. It's very opportunistic. We, because we are the original traditional people, we don't relate to our culture we don't fetishize it into this original tradition and so on you know we manipulate it to tell the story always in a new way and so on and so on she gave a wonderful lesson which is don't fetishize the traditional culture on account of our fidelity they're authentic and so on and so on so uh, uh just uh, maybe i should slowly approach the ending of this part just to give uh, some other examples of what i mean lars von trier okay he's a little bit crazy but (laughs) some of (laughs) his movies not all i like melancholia i love it because i'm a pessimist i think it's a very happy movie (laughs) humanity disappears what more do you want (laughs) we are uh, staying on the but uh, uh, you know i read an interview with him where he explains breaking the waves in a wonderful way because you know what's the paradox of the movie if you've seen it the narrative is ultra romantic passionate love all that and so on but the forum is totally in discord with it first it's not what you expect with romantic movie this you know Uh, art uh, uh, smooth movement gliding smooth camera or whatever no it's done almost as a documentary handheld camera rough cuts which are not even well coordinated and so on and he says something very interesting he says that without this tension between narrative and the forum the narrative would be unbearable kitsch that the function only To be shot in such a way which counteracts the narrative, only in this way can you do such a narrative. Or the opposite example that I like, uh, in many melodramas, even classic Hollywood melodramas, uh, you have a certain narrative which is stupidly, excessively romantic. If you were to stage it directly, it would have been ridiculous. So you downplay it at the level of how it is acted, but the excess is then re-enters in music. You know, what you couldn't show, you enact it in music. And I found this a very interesting point, where it's not simply that you got the point that music illustrates the action. No, music brings out what was too strong for the action what was not allowed to be enacted directly you know who did this in a wonderful way i love the movie the great chaplin classic uh, uh um, my best chaplin i think city lights you remember at the end this triumphant exchange of gazes then you have the end but the music goes on for some 10 seconds it's as if you have an Excel there, so it's very naive. I know primitive what I'm telling you now, and we can go on more in detail, but you see my point. Here, film is thinking, I think, where the forum the forum of a film has its own dynamic, which does not simply faithfully render, illustrates the narrative content, but tells more. Tells even what is excluded, censored in the content, and so on. This tension between form and content is where cinematic uh, thinking is located. And uh, this, I think, is, although he is overinterpreted, I'm getting tired of it, my Slovene gang. We are now moving from Hitchcock to our, now I know you know all it, but he is ingenious. For example, we now try to do new volumes on Ernst Lubitsch, who is, I mean, like, uh, one asks the question, to be or not to be? Is there ontologically mm-hmm. even possible to imagine a better film and so on, you know? But what I want to say is that this uh, uh, I- this tension, you find it in a masterful way in Hitchcock. Because uh, you know how do you see that Hitchcock was thinking in films? Alfred Hitchcock? Uh, it's very interesting to read all these books, the making of, how did he do it? The original idea was, as a rule, not the narrative content. He imagined a certain purely formal movements, a certain movement of a camera, a certain gesture, and so on. And then he, with the help of scenario writers, constructed a story to fit this, Formal movements. And what I regret now, <laughs> three minutes, two minutes, <laughs> I will stop. What I regret is that, and it's my responsibility, that we were not able to show you here a very traditional clip the second murder, second Arbogast from Hitchcock's Psycho. I think this is a wonderful example, maybe the best I know, of thinking in cinema. You know, Arbogast climbs the stairs in Mother's uh, house. And you have the standard Hitchcockian exchange of uh, point of view shot, Arbogast observing the stairs, and the objective shot of Arbogast climbing up. Okay, this is the standard way to create tension. But then, you know that famous twisted movement? The camera goes up, and you see this famous, what they call, God's view. And then when the creature enters and starts to step with a knife, Arbogast, you get into the point of view, impossible point of view shot of this creature. This is, I think, one of the elementary matrixes of Hitchcock, and the first thing to do, I did this in my our collective Hitchcock volume, is I was surprised to discover how systematically Hitchcock resorted to the same procedure. For example, in the birds, when you have that famous scene when fire explodes, some uh, gasoline station explodes. There is big fire in Bodega Bay. You have Tippi Hendren looking at the gasoline station exploding, This standard subjective objective, objective shot. Then you have the famous shot up there, so-called God's view shot from above. And then Hitchcock does something absolutely ingenious. Uh, you first think this is an objective shot like establishing shot, just but then from behind one bird enters another bird enters and the objective shot all of a sudden turns into a point of view shot and this affects you as a viewer you thought you are just identified with the camera oh now we see it all then you see your gaze is evil embodied it's so i claim there is a whole hitchcockian gnostic theology in this How, you know, Hitchcockian theology is a very dark one, is that God is an ignorant, stupid God, and when he intervenes, it's Norman Bates, (laughs) is divine intervention, and so on. And it's also narratively true. Like another way Hitchcock is thinking, and then you have to stop me, otherwise it will end bad. (laughs) There is something that the two films share, that we all know and love, Vertigo and Psycho. Both films can be imagined in a much shorter version, around half. Look, how perfectly it would have worked. Imagine Psycho, which stops Undershower, a Marion Undershower, just before uh, 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 the uh, uh, Shower murder. It works perfectly. It's a morality story about a girl who, out of despair, steals money then runs away there in the shape of Norman Bates. She sees what is ahead of her, the horror, and she withdraws and cleanses herself like she was on the brink of so It works perfectly. Vertigo, it's the same. Uh, it's the, uh, uh, when, uh, when Madeleine uh, falls, so we think, from the tower and we see uh, uh, Scotty, James Stewart in total despair. Imagine that the movie, it's a short one-hour movie, stops at that point. It's a perfect city psychological melodrama of how, out of excessive love, because of the pressure putting on her, how Scotty kills the woman he loves, and so on and so on. It works perfectly, but then you have part two, a total shift of perspective, and so on and so on. You see, these things interest me, and I am not here formalist in the Maybe, I'm not sure. Although he thinks I'm a total idiot, I still, up to a point, appreciate him, David Bordwell. But formalist in a different sense, in the sense that, you see, to understand the film, you should include into its content the message delivered by the autonomy of form. It's at that level that true thinking in cinema happens. If I don't stop now, I will never okay, stop. Let's, so Let's
0: arbitrarily stop you there. And, but my next question might follow a bit on what you've just said about the working of form. Uh, you were speaking this afternoon a bit about indirection and how, in works of art, there's, um, you had a, a preference for works of art that operated, in some sense, indirectly, that if they tried to. Mm present some moral or political message in too direct form that would, in, in a sense, uh, constitute the failure of the work of art. That happens to be Percy Shelley's actually theory of, oh yeah, of I poetry. Yeah. Although, Very I explicitly. like Shelley who
1: doesn't. He was yeah. the true leftist. Yes, you know, His exactly. wonderful
0: revolutionary text. Yes, pure leftist politics, but a, a
1: theory of indirection. But as isn't poetry. this what we all want? as leftist yeah, the best of both Marxist. worlds. the <laughs> best of both worlds, yeah. <laughs> right. I'm yeah, yeah. um, ah, sorry, you know, you know what Marx said? Here Marx mm-hmm. was right. He said, for us, progressives, it was good that Byron died early, but it was bad that Shelley died early. Exactly. Because Byron yeah. would have become conservative, Shelley would have been ours. Sorry, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah.
0: go on, please. Um, so w- would you say that that um, that film, through its f- form content relation is that a way that it's working indirectly or how i mean you you talked uh... also this afternoon a bit about an, and in your recent work about works films that that quite apart from their uh... express mm. political views will somehow repor- will of necessity reproduce a world class difference etc. cetera mm-hmm. um, but, but um, you know often in film just in an indirect way and I was if it, So Trying to get us, you know, uh, more or less organically from um, from film to politics, the way the way politics <coughs> is
1: represented in film, more or less directly. <coughs> I agree with what you are saying, but as you are, I'm totally sure aware, the point does not mean that this that this indirect way simply means don't say directly for some stupid that we are advocating some stupid artificial games and so on and so on the true art would have been to show things directly, but in such a way that you become aware that what you see directly is not really the thing that we were aiming at. For example, Mm -hmm. I don't uh, don't be afraid, I'm not a pervert, I don't watch hardcore pornography, but I must admit it Mm -hmm. fascinated me always. You know why? Because it's, maybe the most paradoxical genre that you can imagine. On the one hand is, we see everything, you know. Yes, we see everything, but at the same time, A, it's the most codified genre that you can imagine. I know because I saw a good French documentary on, not the making of Psycho Vertigo, but the making of a hardcore movie. Where they say, again, how absolutely codified it is. For example, the standard heterosexual uh, hardcore movie, you know, you present the two people. First, you have masturbation, dreaming about each other. Then, the big act, first cunnilingus. It's absolutely codified. Then, now I will tell you something that may shock you. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Dean McConnell, a Californian friend of mine, I lost Mm -hmm. contact with him now, wrote a wonderful analysis of, it's disgusting, I warn you, but it's wonderful, Mm -hmm. of the expressions of women's face during sexual act in hardcore movies. And he discovered there is nothing spontaneous about it. It's strictly codified, even a kind of a gray semiotic square. Four expressions are codified and then I learned from people who are doing these movies that it's they even have I forgot them terms about them One is the one you would have expected the Uh, ecstasy Yes more (laughs) whatever then things get much more interesting the next expression is what I'm tempted to call uh, What I'm tempted to call in Habermasian terms the instrumental reason Expression. <laughs> it's, you know, the woman with her lips tight, looking down, like, oh my God, one another effort. It's hard work. <laughs> you know, this, we are in the middle of <laughs> hard work. The third expression uh, is, uh, uh, even more, it's, uh, it's uh, indifference. Woman is chewing gum, don't, and this is part of uh, erotic play. A true femme fatale must play indifference, you know. And then the last one, uh, uh, so yeah, this is the third one, indifference. The last one, which is the most dangerous one, it's also absolutely codified. Is while the man is doing the hard work, the woman is looking at him with an ironic smile, like, ha ha, is this all you can do, <laughs> or whatever, you know. So you see, even there, the intimate domain, it's a perfectly structured semantic uh, series of oppositions and so on. But, so you think you see everything directly. No, I developed long ago these points. You pay the price, it's heavy censored. Uh, It was like this, and even now it is in the majority of hardcore movies. You know, I'm sorry if you know this story, but I really, I think it holds Uh, this example of mine. I remember when I was young in my adolescence, Uh, big experience, the first hardcore movies, what shocked me is how utterly, I'm talking about this uh, long, one hour and a half, full movie, how utterly stupid the story is. You know, they had to use a story. It's, I remember, sorry for retelling this, but I was so shocked, you know, it's extreme vulgarity, like I remember once, how do you call it, the guy who regulates water supply, the uh, the who does pipes and so on, uh. plumber, sorry. A plumberer fixes the kitchen and then the housewife comes to him and says, okay, you fix that hole, but I have another hole to be fixed. (laughs) Can you, you know, like you are just embarrassed. (laughs) And then it got to me. They are not so stupid. The price you pay for it, for seeing all, is that it must be sabotaged at the psychological level. It must be, it is as if to have both of it, authentic investment and direct hardcore sex, it wouldn't work. It's Lacanian veil of castration, well choice mm-hmm. at its purest. You can see it all, but chop, chop, you will not get serious emotions. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> I mean, fake, but to be taken as serious. The proof is another one. I know Catherine Breya and so on. There is a whole series of directors today who try to do this, to do a serious melodrama, even psychological drama. But it's typical how it doesn't catch on, how it remains marginal. Uh, now you will say, but as I was brutally said at some point. But listen, you must be pretty old, because this type of movies, Plumberer, are no longer made for 20, 30 <laughs> years. <no? laughs> and then I asked them, but what is going on? And they told me uh, uh, Gonzo movies, which are even worse censorship. You notice know in Gonzo movies? The definition is I think that actors don't even pretend that they are part of a narrative. Gonzo means actors themselves, while doing it sex, directly address camera and refer to it you know all this irony am i good now should i move my leg like that i think this is an even worse censorship it is that you have to get the message all the time we are not acting seriously and so on and so on so you see this is how we should correct that notion about directness sometimes directness in this sense okay we think about sex but we (laughs) show it all is is the most obfuscating is the most obfuscating thing that there is and uh, you know what i was really thinking if you allow me another detour when i was thinking about directness it was at how (coughs) uh, uh, at how (laughs) the way at the most elementary level to analyze, for example, catastrophe movies, is to not to be too fascinated by those old great digitally done usually scenes of catastrophe and so on. I claim that all these movies should be read through some or sexual frame, which may appear to be marginal on the edge, But it provides the hermeneutic key. For example, to be stupid, uh, did you see, I'm ashamed to mention it, but an evil step at my very good friend Alain Badiou. Did you see Armageddon, that Ben Affleck, Mm -hmm. Bruce Willis, Liv Tyler? Uh, I mean, with Badiou, we have this running joke. I always talk around evil things about him. You know, when he developed the notion of courage, fidelity to event. He admitted to me, privately he was thinking about Armageddon. No, but you (laughs) have some strange friends with some (laughs) movies. He likes Armageddon, he likes Armageddon, I pardon him. But the other of his choices, I will never pardon him. He likes Bridges of the Madison County. (laughs) Sorry, that's too much. Even I, you may not (laughs) believe it, I have a limit, you know. But let's go to these movies. Isn't it clear? Remember Armageddon, that officially it's about the usual bullshit. A gigantic comet or whatever, some stupid rock approaching Earth, and will humanity save itself by exploding it? But then you have the melodrama. Basically, Ben Affleck is screwing Cliff Tyler, who is, uh, uh, who is uh, uh, Bruce Willis' daughter, and it's the fury of the father. At the end, when he, father, sacrifices himself, he gives the two of them a blessing. So at some libidinal level, it's really a story about father's jealousy, his inability to let his daughter go. And at some different libidinal level, all that bullshit about comets and so on is about father's fury. Even more directly, my favorite example, did you see... Mimi Leder directed it with Tia Leone, that bullshit, uh, the deep impact. There it's absolutely clear that, again, the comet threatening Earth, it's Tia Leone, her father, played by Maximilian Schell, uh, divorced her mother and married a young woman. It's daughter's fury and jealousy. Because then, the end, the f- one of the final scenes of the movie is wonderful. When the comet, which will not destroy Earth, uh, is approaching, he, the daughter, joins his father, somewhere there in Hamptons on the um, uh, east coast of the United States. And they embrace. And then you see the gigantic wave from the comet, which hit the ocean, approaching them. And she embraces him and says, oh, daddy. And they are both swept away, they die both. I always think that this scene should be interpreted against the background of another famous scene of lovers on the beach. You remember the famous scene between Deborah Kerr and Bert Lancaster in From Here to Eternity. This like two lovers, soft waves. Here you get a slightly bigger wave. How should I put it? <laughs> but you see what I'm trying to tell you here: that although the movie is officially about catastrophe and so on, but it has this inner tension because the whole narrative interest is sustained, nonetheless by this uh, melodramatic story so that, although the catastrophe is within the narrative space of the film, objective out there, but the libidinal meaning of the catastrophe is defined with this libidinal. And you know which is for me with this, I will end again, I announce it, uh, the author which now he moves in a different direction, but for a long time he was playing this game. That's my very simplistic, but I think I'm right reading of the most of the early films of uh steven spielberg what is et he's a marriage couple mediator i think it's absolutely (laughs) crucial that you remember at the beginning this is a divorced family father is in mexico and it's always traumatic shall we call him in to mexico and so on father abandoned them at the end, you remember uh, what is the final scene of the movie? E.T. going home? I hate that freak. I mean, <laughs> if you ask me, I would like to <laughs> squash with my boots that freak. But <coughs> e- why can E.T. go home? Because among the scientists who are bad, you notice one is the good scientist. And when E.T.'s sheep is leaving, he is already holding his hand around mother's shoulders and so on. So. At the libidinal level, it's really the boy's dream how to reestablish family. How to pass from bad father to good father. And if you use this as a clue, incredible things are discovered. Like Schindler's List, it's clearly Liam Neeson's children, first he's a bad father exploiting Jews, he turns into a good father. Up to, for example, you remember, uh, the uh, War of the Worlds. The whole problem is Tom Cruise begins as a bad father at the end, through helping the children, blah, blah, he turns into a good father. And I think even Jurassic Park one has this subtle logic. I think it's that O'Neill, how is it called, the, the New Zealand yeah. actor? Uh, Sam, Sam Neil. Neil, Yeah. He is, at the beginning, the bad father, you know, scaring the children and so on. And through that threat, he turns into a good father. There are many details which point in this direction. So, I like reading Spielberg in this way. The movies can be about Holocaust, Auschwitz, about this, about that, the end of the world. But the true story is the restoration of paternal authority. And you cannot take this away. If you take this away, you get a flat, boring movie. It's just something which appears as secondary, but it's absolutely crucial to how we relate to that movie. Thanks. Um, I was worried during the discussion of Gonzo
0: pornography that there har- examples. Har- no, that <laughs> might be hard to get to the refugee crisis, but,
1: um, but in between, can uh, I tell you something no. very <laughs> sad, very sad, which now I'm not joking. Unfortunately, there is a connection. Uh, uh, Hardcore, some hardcore pornographic uh, parts of movie industry are already trying to get cheap actors from (laughs) refugees. You know, reality is evil. Sorry. No, it's not surprising.
0: Um, But um, you mentioned catastrophe films, and backstage we were talking about uh, Guillermo del Toro, who is apparently somewhere in the building or around TIFF this evening. there's a big wave in Pacific Rim, I imagine you saw that. that
1: yeah, and film. I liked it. You know it why? A- again, the formal level. Sorry to interrupt yeah, yeah. you. Uh, did you? Kn- the difference is that in all these Star Wars-type movies, or even Transformers, it's a very simple material thing. Uh, even if they are gigantic metallic figures, they run smoothly. Everything is so clean smooth. While well, what fascinated me in Pacific Rim is how all these gigantic to fight invaders, robots, whatever they have, uh, they are dirty, they are rotting, they break down. All it's incredible how this raw, dirty material presence is uh, accentuated there. This fascinates me because you know that at this level we find one of the most interesting coincidences between uh, Hays Code and Soviet Union, harsh Stalinist censorship. At this level of raw materiality, I think uh, Hayes Code was even worse, in the sense that you know everything was censored, especially it was prohibited. Like there were some movies you remember in the 30s, Sam Goldwyn was doing them about, uh, about slums, poor people, and so on. But I read in a book on Sam Goldwyn that censors absolutely insisted that, like how should I put it, it can be slum, but you shouldn't smell the dirt. Like you know that it should look uh, clean slum, like uh, 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 the, uh, the floor, the, the ground should be clean, and so on, and so on. And, it, and this materiality of you shouldn't smell the rot, the dirt was absolutely crucial. It lasted up to Hitchcock. I read this in Hooded, Stephen Rebello, The Making of Psycho, that uh, the greatest of Hitchcock's problems in psycho with censorship was not as you maybe you expected, a uh, shower murder, blood. But you remember at the end when uh, Vera Miles looks into the toilet to show the toilet from the inside. You know, for a moment, he picks up a piece of paper then where it says 40,000, whatever. But uh, this was where he had to do all the negotiation. And it was absolutely insisted that you show from above the toilet, the inside, just for the split of a second, that it should be absolutely clean and so on and so on. So again, at this level, I appreciate uh, greatly a uh, uh, Pacific Rim, And I was said that even commercially, that it didn't—it was a hit, but not a real hit. No, I mean, so so. Right,
0: right. Sorry, I interrupted yep. you. Please go um, on. But in the, in I'm, the I'm r- not really sorry, of course,
1: but I pretend yes. to <laughs> be <but laughs> sorry. Um,
0: so in recent years, you've you've written about end times. I don't know if we need an update if we are still in end times or when when exactly. But historically, everyone announcing end times has been wrong, from St. Paul to, to the recent present. Um, but now, you know, perhaps we're facing, facing the first moment where it's actually real, yeah. and we get, a, we get a spate of apocalyptic films, catastrophe films, and interestingly, and this is the perhaps not too hokey bridge to uh, your recent Point. work, yeah. a lot of them uh, foreground uh, the refugee crisis, uh, so children of men which we, of which we saw a clip begins not with the most uh, the most obvious uh, explicit problem facing that world as the the non production of new children, but with immigration, chaotic immigration um, and you've you 've written uh, famously now about uh, uh, the refugee crisis and multiculturalism uh, it 's fair to say that there 's a lot of um, resistance to some of your works, Absolutely. partly. It's clear that part, at least part of it is uh, a misunderstanding. But here you are in the, in the home of official multiculturalism since 1971, and uh, and you see refugee crisis and multiculturalism as as linked issues in in some way. I think, um, and Canada has has been um, you know uh, prominent in the you know precise number of refugees it will take uh, in distinct on the world stage and or in the. Array of countries of who is taking none. You've been critical mm-hmm. of Qatar and, and Saudi Arabia, etc. Which uh, they <coughs> none. Which exactly, are, precisely. It's,
1: it's an ontological scandal. Precisely. For listen zero. Beneath, the, sorry to interrupt, mm. but listen. Is, if there ever was a scandal, this is the one. Immediately beneath the crisis region, Iraq and Syria, you have what Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, Kuwait, Emirates, extremely rich countries. How many refugees are they taking none this tells you a lot no 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 uh, to under, uh, avoid a misunderstanding i'm not saying this tells you a lot how this is all an arab plot to invade europe or whatever but it tells you nonetheless a lot of the entire complex geopolitical uh, uh, background and th- the other mystery is for me isis let's be serious isis are a couple of thousands of people there playing their games if superpowers were really intent of destroying isis it can be done in a month without any problem i claim that isis far from really functioning as the arch enemy is something it's kind of a pseudo enemy that all the sides are using to fight each other it's just the empty screen of evil through which other uh, other agonisms tensions are played out for example i don't know iran versus saudi arabia russia versus (laughs) versus the west and so on and so on so it's an extremely uh, complex situation and uh, I d- okay, you finish your question. So that I'm finished. I, it's it's an
0: opportunity for you to clarify your position in some sense.
1: No, uh, uh, okay, I was accused of many things. One of them is uh, uh, being uh, racist, Islamophobic, Eurocentrist, and so on and so on. But I see. First, let me clarify my point. I repeat this again and again three theses. The first one, the main responsibility for the refugee crisis lies with us, the West, the Western powers. At two levels, we have this responsibility. First, the economic one. Again, I always mention this country, which is the ultimate horror for me today, Congo, Republic of Congo. It's a country very wealthy, called on other minerals. And it's presented as kind of a heart of darkness. Yeah, but this heart of darkness is fully included into global economy. In this, you know, all those local war- warlords there are selling the stuff to comp- uh, to mineral companies whatever. What I want to say is this: that uh, this decay, ruin, failed states in Africa. This is not just some primitive there. It's clearly. It's elementary, to quote Sherlock Holmes. It's uh, linked uh, to the way global capitalism relates to exploits, whatever you say, those countries. For example, I can tell you that, imagine that all the minerals disappear from the ground of Congo. I claim it would have been, and this is the tragedy for them, a much more peaceful, better state. And it's the same in many other countries. When we hear about religious conflicts and so on, usually there are Western interests behind, and so on and so on. So first, we should talk openly, frankly, about what, for the lack of better term, we can call economic neo-colonialism. And nobody is clean here. We shouldn't blame only the West. For example, I celebrate China. It's incredible what economic success they are. But the way they are acting recently in some African countries, Latino-American countries, and others, it's clear, absolute economic neocolonialism also. So they are also doing it. Or another horrible thing for me, you know what some Asian countries and Arab countries here Exceptionally, we are not so guilty. Like, I think South Korea is doing it, uh, Saudi Arabia, and so on. They are buying large tracts of the best fertile land in some African countries, from Mozambique to Madagascar, even in Somalia, uh, sorry, not Somalia, but Eritrea, and so on. And they use it mostly even for industrial plants to export, and so on. I mean, this is, so this is one, the economic aspect. Second aspect are these geopolitical interventions, war, and so on and so on. To tell, th- without military American uh, uh, intervention in Iraq, to cut a long story short, there wouldn't have been ISIS. There wouldn't have been an, uh, 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 what goes on now in in Syria. Without the stupid Western intervention in Libya, there wouldn't have been what is going on now in Libya and so on and so on it's just (coughs) it's this is for me elementary especially I want to emphasize the tragedy of Iraq it's almost a comical tragedy the ultimate stupidity namely Americans intervened and incidentally this is one of the very dark chapters of American feminism Nancy Fraser wrote a good book on it how many American feminists supported American intervention it will bring freedom from Muslim oppression to women of Iraq, where unfortunately it's the exact opposite. Because whatever Saddam was, and he was a monster, his regime up to the end when he started to flirt with Islam to get support, his regime was basically Arab nationalist secular one. And at least his record with women was way above the usual Arab standards. Women got many public posts, they were educated, and so on and so on this is now the situation of women as the result of american intervention is much worse there is another paradox under saddam there were around two million of christians in iraq who if they didn't mess with politics of course they, no problem they lived there now the result of american occupation because the public order police disintegrated and Islamic Muslim militias took over, and um, uh, uh, Christians began to feel the pressure. Already around, I think, three quarters of Christians left the country, (laughs) so that's the result. Much worse situation for women, and it's nice irony. A Western Christian country uh, invades Iraq, and the result is Christians are out. What Islam was not able to do in thousands of years and so on. So what I'm (laughs) saying is that all this background has to be taken into account. But, 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 there is a but. Don't, on the other hand, don't patronize the Arabs in the sense of, you know, it's very popular in Europe, this, how do I call it, uh, masochist leftist attitude. Whenever something bad happens in the third world, it must be the consequence of neo-colonialism. We are to be blamed and so on and so on. No, this is stupid. I'm sorry to tell you. Arabs are not just passive victims. They have certain projects. They are. I speak like Sartre here. We are never just passive participants in a situation. We react even when we are in a worse situation through certain, let's call it, existential project. So so I think that this type of self-culpability, we are responsible for everything, and so on and so on, it's not such a simple. For example, what Saudi Arabia, let's forget about ISIS. I don't worry about so-called terror. But, for example, what Saudi Arabia is doing and some other countries, it's clearly not that they are victims. It's a well-defined religious political project and so on. Second point uh, 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 is that, uh, and here things get really problematic. Of course there are cultural problems with refugees. And the predominant idea among left liberals in Europe is let's not talk about it. It will, be, it will be exploited by racists. I think, no, we should treat them as adults. We should absolutely, openly, clearly address all the problems. Otherwise, we will have uh, uh, anti-immigrant right in power in Europe. Let me give you, and I will not use Uh, Muslims because they are not the only ones. It's, I think, a general trend in the world today towards uh, reassertion of religious fundamentalism. In United States, in most of Europe, especially the part of Europe which is mine, Mm. uh, 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 post-communist countries. Look, the problem, I see it in this way. It happened in Slovenia, I think, some ten years ago. A girl from Uh, gypsy, Roma, Roma is the term today, from Roma family, escaped to some public institution, police, I don't know, claimed that she was 12 years old, that her parents wanted her to marry these prearranged marriages, and she doesn't want to. And then, of course, all the feminists supported her, but then it was really tragic to hear the, how do you call him, the boss, whatever, of the Roma community who said, listen, here multiculturalism really begins. The way we do our arranged marriages, this is the very core of our community. If you take this from us, in two generations, we are finito. We will be maybe useful to dance some stupid folkloric dances, to, to, to do our kitchen and so on. But we as a community are over. So I ask you, what would you have done here? I claim that we have to recognize the problem. There is a problem here. A girl comes to the police. What would you have done? Would you protect her, or would you return her to her family? If you do that, you can be sure he would be pu- she would be punished and married, but what would you do? And just uh, don't tell me that through some cultural dialogue it can be done you have to act now tell me what would you have done because it is true no way out that if you protect her you really lay the foundations for the destruction of their community they are totally right here this uh, arranged marriages are the very core of how Their community is reproducing itself, and we have massively the same problem today in Germany. I saw on German TV on the left channel, Zweite Deutsche Fernsehen (ZDF), which is first is right, second is left, more social democratic. So it's not right-wing propaganda. That this the same situation that I described now happens around at least two thousand thousand times per year in Germany. A girl from Turkish or other third world so-called communities runs to the police she wants to I don't know she doesn't want to be covered she wants to marry a German guy have a board whatever it doesn't matter she feels oppressed and you know that Germany deals with this discreetly how they opened already over 20 secret uh, homes for them where it's really like witness protection they gave them new names and so on and so on so again then arabs protest they claim you are not tolerating our traditional family structure all i'm saying and for this i am accused of being uh, racist or whatever is of course i'm well aware that we should not simply impose our western values i know all the story how our western values are not really universal even if they officially use universal terms you know human rights are twisted in a certain way for example they privilege individual rights or whatever and so on and so on all i'm saying is we are dealing here with problems and the way to act is to address these problems also critically towards ourselves i'm not even saying that we are absolutely right here i'm saying that it would have been a catastrophe not to openly address these problems and don't tell me these are marginal problems because this is cultural identity is an incredibly strong factor this this is This is ideology today. Not what gods we believe, but how we deal with women, with men, how we eat, what is tolerable, what kind of speech is tolerable. For example, as I wrote in other of my texts, when, we, when, uh, when Muslims protested so much about some, I don't know those Islam caricatures and so on and so on, we in the West, the defense was, oh, they don't have any sense of irony, blah, blah, our sense of humor. No, I'm much more of a pessimist here. Every civilization has certain, let's call them, uh, untouchable points. It cannot be tolerated that you talk like that about that. For example, and I'm not saying that this is not good, right? But for example, when Western people claimed, oh, with us, you can make fun of everything. Well, fuck you, make fun of Holocaust. And you will see what us, and it's good that we cannot make fun of Holocaust. Let me be clear. I'm just saying that uh, it's not simply we are open, Arabs are not. So what do we do here? How to deal with all I'm saying? My message is just, these are serious problems which should be openly debated, not just washed away. And maybe now we can see the movie, because I think this movie by my good Israeli friend, Udi Aloni, he comes from top Jewish Zionist establishment. His mother, Shulamit Aloni was one of the founding sisters, whatever we mean, (laughs) in 48. Then she was very progressive later. She was the minister of culture in Yitzhak Rabin government. And she did something wonderful. Under her reign, for the first time in Israel, when they presented to school children the history of Israel, Arab. Palestinian suffering was also mentioned, addressed, and so on, all that stuff. But this movie is a movie about an Arab rock singer. I know him. He's my friend, Tamer Nafar, who is also in reality, a rapper. rapper. And he uh, plays the leading role also, a rapper who is organizing a concert among Palestinians uh, uh, in Israel. These are Israeli Palestinians, those who remained in israel after 47 and the problem is that they have a girl singer and her family is putting pressure on her that he, that it's intolerable for them to sing in public the idea is they will kill her if they do it and the movie ends up in an ambiguous but rather pessimist way so the reason i love this movie, I'm not saying it's the greatest movie of all times and so on, Uh, is that uh, it addresses something that is going on and it's typical how our media ignore it. You know, Palestinians are not just some primitive fundamentalist. You have very strong, uh, very strong movement for women's rights, for against honor killings uh, uh, on the West Bank and so on and so on. And uh, I think the way to act is to connect to this. This film is for me a proof because Udi Aloni directed it, but all the actors, he's part almost of the Palestinian scene there. It's how... Uh, Uh, You know, usually we see the opposition. We in the West want women's rights and we despise Muslims to be primitive. Muslims despise our logic of women's rights as Western decadent. They want traditional patriarchy. No, the scene is much more complex. We have today our own fundamentalists and they have their own feminism. And the, the really big crucial thing would have been to find a link here if we don't find a common denominator between our struggle for gay rights women's rights and so on and the palestinian struggle for freedom if these fights remain opposite western liberals don't want to have anything to do with that struggle because they are fundamentalists and opposite we are lost this is why this movie is a courageous movie and after we see the clip I can tell you of the polemics raised by this movie. So
0: I had been getting a signal that we should switch to <laughs> Q&A. Do we have the time for that? Yes. So y- if we could cue the... Will we have time?
1: Yep. It's got He thinks that it will spoil, but <laughs> the ending, okay, to spoil it, I will of course tell you what's the ending. <laughs> the ending's that uh, uh, the movie is much more amusing and it's full of music and from now, on the last quarter of an hour, it's all music. And the girl gets ready. She goes to the concert. Not quite. We see her leaving the house. But in front of the house, we see her two brothers basically getting ready to kill her, no? waiting for. And now, if I may just conclude, I mm. want to make a point, which should be um, uh, it's very sad. You can immediately check it on. Um, on on internet. Uh, This movie and Tamer Nafar, the singer, caused great polemics here and in Palestina. Some so-called radical leftists criticized the movie. For example, Tamer Nafar visited New York, uh, I think a year, a year and a half ago, and gave a concert before this movie, where he has also one of his popular songs, Uh, is for Palestinians protesting against these honor killings of girls who stray from the straight road. And uh, the accusation was that we shouldn't talk about it because if we do it, we just, that this will be exploited in the West to confirm that Arabs are really conservative and so on. And critics went on, if you If there really are honor killings, Israelis are to blame for them because they really tolerate them and support conservative Arabs and so on and so on. I am totally perplexed at this critique. And you can read it in my book, Tamer Nafar. He was attacked for this, and he gave a wonderful, dignified answer at Columbia University, where he said, you who criticize me, you do this in English to, 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 to get points from your English professors. I, in my country, I think in Arab to protect our women, and so on and so on. So uh, what, is, what about this argument? Then some my friends criticized me. I appreciate them. For example, Jamil Kader wrote an email where he has a more elaborate criticism. He reproaches this film for not bringing in the right class struggle perspective of global capitalism. Okay, I was a little bit perplexed like this. Fuck it, what should should they all the time say, listen, we are part of the global class struggle? Then I asked him, (laughs) fuck you, (laughs) what do you mean by this? His (laughs) answer was that the movie doesn't make it clear the Israeli complicity in these honor killings. Now, my answer is this one. I basically agree with it, not just in the case of Israel. But this already is the first lesson that we should learn politically. Uh, Global capitalism does not work in the way of we should all eat hamburgers western culture and so on from the very beginning till now global capitalism was not in an authentic sense but in the worst possible sense multicultural global capitalism knew from the very beginning that the best way to keep the colonized in their subordinate position is to leave them in their local culture for example i know the story from India how the most horrible books one of them of most uh, of all times the loss of Manu which prescribes describes in detail the rules of uh, castes and so on and everything if you belong to this caste, you should make love in that way you should wipe your penis after orgasm in that way it's madness Totally. like for a bureaucratic guy like me it's pure mm. pleasure you mm. know everything is regulated mm. but but you know what you learn that in 17th century and 18th caste system was already to a large degree under Muslim influence who were dominating India disintegrating and this book loss of Manu was rediscovered printed throughout the 19th century by British colonizers because they got it the best way to control India is to Restore their ancient order, which will keep them under discipline, and so on and so on. So again, colonizers didn't want to destroy local traditions. You should all become like us. No, they were terribly afraid of this. Not only this, but you should read the book. It's pleasurable, although I don't like him as a writer. Aldous Huxley, Jesting Pilatus. His uh, travelogue, he visited India in 1920s, and it's wonderful what he learned there that all these top british administrators colonial in india they were always ready to admit that we in the west we are vulgar secular materialist civilization uh, a simple Indian uh, Indian uh, uh, farmer, poor, praying, has more authentic spirituality than all of us and so on and so on. They were always ready to concede this. But God help us if these Indians want to study technology, become like us and so on and so on. So again, uh, sticking back... Re- uh, I think that that's why, I'm sorry if I repeat my old story, which must be known to you, that's why my true hero is Malcolm X. You know what is X? X means we don't have our roots. But you know what Malcolm X did with it? It was not, oh, we must restore our roots. This is the stuff for Hollywood, for TV, Alexis Haley, big series. I think Malcolm X saw something in an extremely revolutionary, wonderful way. That his idea was, what if this X, which means we lack our roots, offers us a unique chance of freedom? To be more authentically universal, reinvent a new universal space, so that we will be the true universal egalitarians, not the Western people, and so on. That's the crucial struggle today. So again, back to the movie, then I stop. I totally agree with this uh, uh, criticism that there is a complicity. And this complicity is now even open. I mean, if you are listening to latest political news, something crazy is happening. There is now a new axis. I called it, ironically, axis of evil emerging. Be careful what is happening now in the Middle East. Turkey, Israel, Saudi Arabia. Isn't this a nice paradox? The most fundamentalist, at least it pretends to be, Saudi Arabia is really a big banking mafia family investing money. But they pretend uh, they are already coordinating their, their activity. Their generals are meeting for years. Saudi Arabia and Israel against Iran and so on. So, uh, so again, this is true, but. Uh, uh, This is why, but I don't see the conclusion because that's precisely the point of the film that the way precisely because uh, the most traditional Muslim oppression of women is precisely in order to prevent integration, in order to keep things at a distance is fully tolerated, in what sense tolerated? I was told that, for example, when in an honor killing, a Palestinian girl is killed, uh, Israeli police do- doesn't do anything, basically, and so on and so on. But that's why we should jump out of joy when you have an authentic movement for women's rights in, among Palestinians themselves. And this is what is happening. That's why I don't see the logic of that criticism of the film. It doesn't mention the complicity of Israel. My God, it does all the time. What this is just saying is that if we really want to win at least the ideological battle against Zionism, it's not by sticking to our old Arab traditions, but fighting for our women's rights is part of fighting for our political freedom. And this is the true message of the film, which is why, again, I think it's so important, this film. And also, Tamer (coughs) Nafar, he deserves to become a star, simply, I think, because he's an incredibly, you know, what surprised me is the sheer common sense, funny nature, like the last time I talked with him when he was in New York, Tamer Nafar, they, his punk, his uh, group, they were invited by some college there, and after their performance, the college served them a meal, a reception, and what did they get? Uh, Hummus and all that (laughs) bullshit. And Tamar told me, it's horror, I eat <laughs> that shit all the time. I mm-hmm. came here to the United States to get corrupted with hamburgers and so on. Now I have to eat the same shit as my ho- You see, that's the guys I like, full of irony and so on. I mean, Palestine, my experience, is a wonderful country. Okay, I will conclude just with one joke, let me go on. The best respectful religious joke that I heard maybe you know it from some of my earlier books, was among the Christians of Palestine. Very tender jokes that I like about Jesus Christ, like just one, not obscene one. I love it. I heard this from a Christian Palestinian. I like this total historical inaccuracy. Uh, Jesus Christ gets tired of his preaching, his preaching, and he takes one of the apostles, Let's take go to Galilee Sea and close to it. Let's play golf. Okay, Christ is playing golf there. He makes a hit, misses it. The ball falls into uh, the sea, lake water. Okay, Christ, being Christ, he of course walks there on the water, reaches, uh, comes back. And then the apostle says, "But listen, Jesus, this is a very difficult hit." you will probably fail, even, who is your big player, the black guy? uh, Tiger Woods. Even Tiger Woods wouldn't maybe be able to do it. And Jesus said, (laughs) fuck Tiger, I'm Mm -hmm. God, I can do it. (laughs) So he hits it again, it goes again into the water. So he walks on the water again, and that, I like this total historical confusion. At that point, a group of American tourists come there with a bus and are surprised, like, what is that guy doing, walking on water, no? And they approach the apostle and says, but who's that jerk guy? What does he think that he is? Jesus Christ. You know what uh, apostle answers? No, it's much worse. He thinks he's Tiger Woods, you know. (laughs) This is such a wonderful, theoretically correct joke, you know, that even God is discentered. Even Jesus Christ had a... decentered ideal ego that he failed and so on and you should have been there. This joke was not meant as a Dirty obscenity the guy was deeply religious So again there there is hope that's the tragedy of Palestine that they are To cut the long story short. They are the Jews among the Arabs (laughs) the most dynamic educated and so on and so on and uh, it's a desperate situation. Okay, but okay. let me stop. So, Let's go in on. principle, we're out of
0: time, but we, have, we will make time for a question. So, as I understand it, there'll be microphones on either side mm-hmm. of the uh, cinema. So we'll start maybe. You have to, so to ask a question, raise your hand and but
1: get a c- microphone. While we are looking for that, be careful about the questions. You know, an old joke of mine, but I like to repeat it. I love dialogues, but I'm a philosopher and I love late Plato's dialogues. If you know them, <laughs> you know how they are structured. <laughs> One guy talks all the time, mm-hmm. and the other guy says every 10 minutes by zeus. So it is. Yes, <laughs> talking about this. So <laughs> let's have this type of a dialogue, OK? Please, uh, it's uh, it's impo- uh, w-
0: In that spirit, I should start by saying I mostly agree with what you're saying. But let's I Let's go
1: to what you don't agree.
0: Uh, yeah, so. Uh, It's mostly the sense of kind of ontological certainty you're attaching to this category of honor killing. And I'm speaking as someone who uh, grew up in Egypt and immigrated here. I'm prepared to say that the society over there is both more misogynist and misogynist in a different way. But I never heard of an honor killing before moving to the West. Obviously, there is violence against women. Uh, Obviously, it is cultural in some way. But I can't think of a murder that's not cultural uh, and I don't see why we need to distinguish that type of violence from uh, as somehow ontologically separate from violence against women
1: I totally agree with you and the reason I focused on honor killings is that this movie is about them but what you are saying here in my book against the double blackmail I do exactly this I even mention your glorious country here didn't you have One of the most terrifying uh, examples, I don't know in detail the story, but some uh, Inuit or whatever prostitute was killed with a knife, and her torso was displayed there, and so on. I cannot imagine anything more aggressive. So again, not only would I put it into the wider Arab context of misogynism and so on, I would even have said that it's part of a global tendency. Do you think we Christians are maybe at some points better, but maybe at some points worse? We have our own horrors. Look at, for example, and here I also is getting in trouble in Europe. Look at at, uh, Catholic Church pedophilia in Europe. It's so massive that you cannot believe it. We are not talking about a crazy priest here, there. We are literally talking about thousands of cases. It's so expanded that everyone knows this, that it's not simply pedophiles are everywhere, so if you have preached, it's natural that they are also there. In some obscene way, it's part of the church identity. It's what I called its inherent transgression. You know, because for me, a culture is defined not only by its explicit uh, rules, but by obscene practices of violating these rules. Like my standard example, Ku Klux Klan in the 20s. It was Christianity, white men, uh, values, and so on. And it was, it's Saturday evening, let's go and lynch some black guys, let's rape whatever. And this is what always, so along these lines, We should not only link, I totally agree, violence against women with Islam, but we should go into all of cultures. Are we? Maybe we are better, but we should definitely, I'm not so sure, be critical about ourselves, all cultures. I go to the end and say something which in today's, in the world of today's ideological fashions, it's very unpopular, namely Buddhism. I have a great respect for Buddhism. But usually, uh, Islamophobes claim, why do you always mention Islam? For example, Buddhists, they don't have terror, although they protest in Tibet and so on. Sorry, guys, bad news, they do have terror. I know at least of two countries, three, Thailand, Bhutan, and Sri Lanka, where there are organized Buddhist gangs killing Tamils they were doing it in Sri Lanka, in Thailand killing others and so on and so on. So uh I think we should be with regard to this we should absolutely avoid this uh Western superiority moralism, however however we call it. So again, what you said yes. A priori, I must then sincerely, I'm not playing any polite games, I'm a vulgar guy, I'm not polite. I sincerely apologize and uh, accept what you said. The only thing I can say is that I spoke about honor killings because the fucking movie speaks about them. That was my source there. But I totally agree with you, even at another level, that it's i was always suspicious of privileging one form of whatever we call it violence against women crime to obfuscate a more general violence you know like i totally agree with you when you say okay honor killings but isn't it that the whole of society is penetrated dispersed by Violence against women. And my problem is the following one. I think that the populist, anti-immigrant, conservatives, which are now getting stronger and stronger in Europe, I had to laugh so much. How? when right-wingers in Europe protest immigrants. They say, but they don't respect women's rights, and so on and so on. Ha ha, look who is talking. Mm. These same people in internal European politics are usually even more conservative than Muslims who are arriving. Like what is happening in Poland now? Demonstrations to even close all the loopholes for For uh, abortion. Poland already has strict anti abortion laws. But it had three loopholes. If it was rape, if it endangers mother's life, and if the child, unborn child, is a monster, a freak, whatever. Now they want to close even these loopholes and unconditionally prohibit abortion. Or or look at all this neoconservative wave in Russia, although. Eastern Europe, Poland, and so on, uh, Hungary, pretend to be afraid of hate Russia. But it's strange how close to it they are culturally. It's this same backlash, and it's uh, there is now even what is gradually emerging. is some kind of a general conspiracy theory. Maybe you've heard about it. It goes on like this. Communism failed. In 1920s, there was no European revolution, and then uh, communists met Stalin, whoever Comintern, and decided to do something. Their result was communism failed because communists underestimated the strength of Catholic identity, stable ethics, family life. So they decided, in order for us to get a second chance to win. We must first destroy from within Christianity and family life. So it's ridiculous, but I love these conspiracy theories. The theory is then that communists uh, directly organized uh, uh, the Constitution of Frankfurt School, Adorno Horkheimer, to do this job of cultural self-destruction of the West, and the ultimate monster, here is gender theory. Gender theory is the ultimate tool, and in the same of destroying morally the West, and what I find it so wonderful, in a terrifying sense, is that now you would have said, uh, but wait a minute, then they should uh, be close to Muslim fundamentalists. No, they still remain Islamophobic, because they have a totally paranoiac view Uh, that Muslim fundamentalism is not an agent in itself. It is secretly organized by European communist mafia to ruin Europe. That it's not really a religious phenomenon. It's all an attempt to ruin Europe and so on and so on. Now, you may laugh about it, but you know, what makes me afraid is that, you may laugh about it in the same way that it's always good to know this. Till like 2930, all Germany was mostly laughing at Hitler, no? Then they stopped laughing, <laughs> no? So again, uh, again, my sincere apologies, and again, I always insist on this. Let's not fetishize Muslims, because uh, when people tell me, read me in the sense of, uh, but we should throw Muslim fundamentalists out and so on. I said, no, it's much more complex because, but what will we do with our own fundamentalists? No, I would much more like to throw them out no, because I think that our own fundamentalists, anti-immigrant now in Europe, they, not the refugees, are the true threat to Europe. Imagine Europe run by Le Pen in France and so on. If there is anything in Europe worth fighting for, they are the true threat to it. I am afraid. I'm afraid of them. What I'm especially afraid of is that they are now getting much more civilized. You are getting a paradoxical figure of politically correct anti-immigrants. You know, they say, we are open for women's rights, gay rights, that's why we should limit refugees, because they threaten this, and it's disgusting, because in their, and you have the same confusion, it's crucial to read it, you know where. You remember when Ken Livingstone, the ex-Labour uh, mayor of London, was accused on anti-Semitism of anti-Semitism? He, okay, he said it a little bit too brutally, and it's not true in that sense that Hitler was a Zionist. Okay, it's not the most tasteful statement you can imagine, but uh, uh, he was at some point not right. But what I want to say is this. Uh, what made me paranoid years ago is how, at a certain point, the American religious fundamentalist right, which by its nature should be anti-Semitic, became pro-Zionist. Not pro-Jewish, but pro-Zionist. That is to, you have the same, you remember Breivik, that jerk who killed 80 people in Norway It's very interesting to read his text. My friends from Norway translated me some parts. He's at the same time openly anti-Semitic. He openly says how Jews are a problem, Hitler did the work, we don't have that threat in Europe, but England and US have that threat. But at the same time, he's totally pro-Israel. So he said we should throw the Jews out of Europe but support them there. And uh, this is why it's, for me, very tragic. After some minor troubles in France, Netanyahu invited French Jews, you are no longer safe there, come to Israel. You know, what was the reaction in French anti-Semitic right wing, not openly, but with press. Wonderful, we also know this. Yes, out of Europe, Jews, you know. So it's this very weird, dangerous coalition which started already, and I don't blame the Jews here, it was horror, but it's very interesting to read what the Nazis were saying before deciding on Holocaust. For example, in '38, the really bad guy, Reinhard Heydrich, who was shot in Prague, he said, I quote it almost literally, Jews are a great creative nation. We wish them all the best, just not here in Germany. And we should help them to go to Palestine and establish their state there. And we wish them all the luck there, and so on, and so on. It's, uh, uh, so again, do not misunderstand me. I in no way blame the Jews. They were the, what I'm saying is just that there is always this hypocritical remainder in European support for Israel basically we like the jews to go to israel and here although he is disgusting but here it's the only moment where i found a little bit sympathy for Ahmadinejad, where he said okay you europeans did horrible things to jews but why don't you give them part of bavaria or part of germany you know it's like i steal money from you and i pay you (laughs) by giving to you what is not mine there is something so hypocritical about this, you know, let's, 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 get, uh, let's get rid of them. Which is why it doesn't surprise me what is happening now with Saudi Arabia and Israel. This silent de facto coalition between hardline Zionists and hardline Muslim fundamentalists.
0: So you almost get your wish of no questions, but we'll take one more, right? one
1: more uh brief question and, and maybe a brief, answer. brief a brief bullshit answer. <laughs> answer like you know those zen buddhist uh, wisdoms like uh, uh clap with one hand or whatever like yeah. to make you think <laughs> okay please so
2: um we talked earlier today actually before the session and um you actually mentioned uh, how well first of all i said how i'm from iran and Little you are the Yasmin. Th- yes.
1: <laughs> the for me, you will remain the tiger. <laughs> Yasmin, tea. Okay, let's awesome. go. On.
2: And I just, um, well, I just came out watching the movie High Rise, and um, I haven't
1: cleaned it. I'm sorry. What's that? I haven't cleaned the movie. Just to tell okay. you. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, well, uh, I, see I would a suggest lot of you bullshit, watch it. But I want to know
2: how you think. <laughs> what you yeah. think about it? But anyways. Um, i re- I personally wanted to know what you think about anarcho-syndicalism because um, today you told us in a master class how you want to sit kind of in the background and think about like, oh you know I just want to sit back and let other people decide for us in a community, and I just wanted to know if um, we as filmmakers or if we as mm. artists want to sit back, how do we make decisions for our future I mean I adore you, but I, at the same time, I want to know. I
1: know. When you <laughs> say you adore me, it means you are sharpening your knife behind <laughs> your back. <bed. laughs> I hope so. No, but can I ask you, and then you can go on. A okay. very, this is my big problem with anarcho-syndicalism. Okay. Show me one, I just cannot imagine, one example of how it worked, taking over the state, replacing the state whatsoever. Give me one example of anarcho syndicalism in power.
2: Um, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about the one in power because I just questioned power in general. But I was hoping that you.
1: Sorry, in what sense, I will immediately In what sense are you questioning power in general? Just opposing it, or do you think humanity could be reorganized so that we all live together without? Without power.
2: Without power, of course. And I was, as an example, I was hoping um, for you to kind of explain how uh, Spain in the civil civil wars during the 1930s could kind of like overcome that situation.
1: Yeah, but precisely the Spain would have been my example because I know there were couples of anarcho-syndicalists and so on and so on, but then we know, we know what Happens. Okay, then I will put it in another way. The challenges that we are facing today. Biogenetics. The only way out, the only way to control the horror of private companies or states doing it, making terrible experiment, is with large, very powerful state or another agency control, limiting it, it, and so on and so on. Very brutal control. Otherwise, horrors are already happening. I hear all the time from my friends who have friends, rumors about how, you know, screw atomic arms. Now we are in that level of biogenetic arms, how to manipulate brains so that you don't... So that's my first problem. Second problem, ecology. I cannot imagine how to fight it, how to confront ecological challenges without uh, mega large decisions, or, uh, acts. Millions of people will have to be moved and so on and so on. And I just want to know, uh, yes, it functions the way you said, at the local level, communities and so on and so on. But even, isn't it that even for those communities to function, Somebody has to provide the basic service, which means water, electricity, education, and so on and so on. For example, in today's confused situation, I think the most dangerous thing is to abolish universal obligatory state education and to say, oh, each community can organize its own education and so on and so on. Society will explode, rich people will become even different race. So you see, you see what I mean. And this was also my polemics with, friendly, with Tony Negri, who says multitude, multitude. Then I told him, but your notion of multitude functions only if an efficient state power is already there. Then I asked him a simple question. I claimed all examples that you list of multitudes uh, are like he is fascinated with modern dynamic digital capitalism, presuppose the invisible network of state institutions. I told him, give me one example of a multitude which functioned, or at least tried to function without a state network. And then he thought and he mentioned uh, 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 Chinese cultural revolution. Well, I have a great doubts about that uh, about that example. You know, you know what I mean. What I'm claiming again is that we live in a global world, which means that yes, I'm not making fun of what you said. It's wonderful to have local communities anarchically self-organized and so on and so on, but I claim this only works against the background of some kind of a net of institutions, manners and so on which, which have to be organized by some, okay, I wouldn't say uh, higher authority, precisely the way you described it, these artistic communities and so on and so on. Are you aware how many things have to function for an anarcho-artistic community to be able to, to dwell, to do its work? And I think the true challenge is here. It's how, I uh, agree, I'm not celebrating states. I agree with you that the way it functions today, it's okay, stupid terms, not good. But wouldn't our task be precisely how to, what to do with global power, how to change it, and so on. For example, usually friends are telling me Venezuela. Oh, there it worked local communities organizing themselves, and then I start to laugh and say yes, but you had the big boss Chavez with the army and so on, you know. it's So again, I'm just uh, perplexed, you know, by uh, like, do you even have an idea through association of communities or what? For example, you have a country Whole country which is on the edge of disappearing because of drought and so on and so on. Or parts of the country getting infertile and so on and so on. And you have to make, in this case, strong central decisions. People will be moved from here to there. Greece faced the same problem. I had their big conflict with my ex-friend, Kostas Douzinas, who said, you philosophers don't see. There is a new logic in Greece. It's no longer the old centralized logic of decisions. We have big public gatherings. Everyone is allowed to talk, but not for not more than five minutes. Then I told him, OK, I see when Syriza will take power, what will you do? You will have a problem, European pressure, and then you will organize a big gathering and everybody will talk for five minutes and so on, no? I I told them, Syriza guys, no, you should think in brutal terms. The only chance for Syriza would have been to organize, I'm not afraid to say it, a much more efficient secret police and so on. You need this. They were literally terrorized. Varoufakis told me, he discovered that when he was alone in a room with his two, two confidential advisers, half an hour later in Brussels, they knew what they were talking about and so on. So uh, how to do all this? You know why I, although I'm very critical of him, why I appreciate Gandhi, Mahatma? He was honest enough to confront this problem and some Indian friend sent it to me he wrote a very interesting text of how to organize spy service, secret service in democratic India. And I would very much like, there is not a trace of irony in what I will say now. I would love to hear from you how should anarcho-syndicalist community organize their secret police and so on. There is no irony in what I'm saying here. Because uh, you, Like, I don't know how to put it, quite often when we feel free in our authentic community, again that's my basic message, we forget the thick background of institutions and so on. That they all have to function smoothly so that we can enjoy our local freedoms. And that's I think the problem is not your but South American ideology. because to conclude with this joke, I love it. Did you notice, but maybe, where are you here? Are you Americans or Europeans? You are more Europeans, I think. When you enter a building, what is the floor you enter from the street? Is it ground or you start with one? It's ground, you are civilized. Because (laughs) the problem with United States is that, you know, first floor is our ground floor. And that's their problem. They don't know that in order to start counting, you need zero. You need ground. That's their problem. That's why they are atheists in the wrong way. You know in what sense? And another American stupidity, I think you are not, or you are also having it here. When you have high-rise hotels, what do you do with 13th floor? Usually, in most of the American hotels where I was, they jump over it, 12, 14. No? My God, this is horrible for me. Like, uh, like as if God doesn't know that <laughs> 14 is really 13. Like, <laughs> whom are they cheating? You know what I mean? So, you know, now in more serious terms, that's the problem with American individualism. It is not aware of what, of the full power of what Hegel called Sittlichkeit, uh, the shared communal spirit of customs, morse, unwritten rules and so on and so on, all that. That's why, for example, they have such problems with even with healthcare. And I always wanted to ask you, often my not friends, they're not my friends, but people with whom I talk who are more to the right claim Oh look at Canada. Your universal healthcare is a mega fiasco. Is it or not? Okay. There is no simple answer. But my answer would probably be this of course there may be problems corruption blah blah but you see this is what Americans don't see it's organized by state centralized and so on but precisely it doesn't limit your freedom it's the good alienation why because you don't have to worry you can somehow rely I don't have to think all the time what if I get cancer and so on I can somehow Rely on it that the state will take care of it. That's for me not the limitation of freedom. Of course, you can play this game and claim. But if you if you abolish universal health care, don't you gain a new freedom of choosing what kind of health care you want? Yes, but fuck you! I don't want that freedom. <laughs> I want freedom to do. You know. You know. This is where we should fight for, socialist. Legacy, not new Stalinism or whatever. The tragedy of Stalinism was precisely that because it didn't function, it was. That's so nice about it. It's mm. totally wrong that idea that Stalinism was collectivist and so on. No, at the everyday level, it was an extremely atomized, survivalist, brutal society. Nothing functioned, you couldn't rely on it. So, you know, that's the paradox of Stalinism. It wasn't some collectivism where everything was taken care of. In principle, yes, but in reality, nothing functioned. So even now in North Korea, I read a wonderful travelogue of someone who knew a little bit more of North Korea where he says, forget about those parades and so on. In everyday life, it's absolute despair. You have to find your way, smuggle this, steal that, do that. The reality of this collective spirit of North Korea is extremely brutal individualist survivalism.
0: I'm afraid our five minutes is up. Uh, So we arbitrarily have to call this to halt. You know which bad
1: joke I wanted to make (laughs) about you? So why don't you finish? (laughs) Who did that with, uh, you are Ian Balfour. So with what declaration will you finish, you know? Derrida, Derrida
0: made that joke 20 uh, he years, also made years
1: it. ago. Yes. Oh, but some of Derrida's jokes are wonderful, the dirty yes, ones. Yes. That's Adore another s- story. So, we thank Slavoj Žižek? And please? I'm grateful to you. Thank you very much. Ah, he already did it. I thought even that everyone...